Greetings, my friends, and welcome to The Paula Gordon Show, conversations with people at the leading edge. I'm Paula. Challenges to humans' survival are as old as our species. What is new are the multiple threats to human existence on Earth as we know it. Paul Ekman has been researching human emotions for most of his professional career. In 2000, he began a series of conversations with His Holiness the Dalai Lama that changed Dr. Ekman's life. His pessimism turned to thoughtful optimism firmly planted in the perspective of a serious scientist. We have to do what we can to achieve it. We have to find a way to stop killing each other. We have to find a way to stop destroying the planet. Now, that's not an easy goal to have, but it's we have technology has brought us to the brink we are no longer in the 19th or even early 20th century where we could afford to pollute without worry we're going to there'll be global warming will ruin all of our lives and the lives of our children if we don't stop it and that's going to take major effort and with nuclear weapons and their proliferation we're going to kill everyone a lot more than we want to kill if we don't bring that under. So the world has in some sense caught up to the Buddhist view of interdependence. You know, it, you could get away with in the 17th, 18th, 19th century thinking, just for me, just my clan, just fellow Englishmen or Americans, or whatever. You can't do it anymore. Are we up to the challenge? We'll have to tr- we have to try. Will we succeed? I don't know, but I'll try. It's all you can do. And some of that is in seeking emotional awareness, psychological balance, and compassion. Can you, the Dalai Lama says, and I agree with him, if you have self-hatred, you cannot have compassion. You cannot abandon violence if you hate yourself. More than four decades ago, Paul Ekman's exhaustive and meticulous research demonstrated that facial expressions of emotions are the same in all humans. By opposing received wisdom, he earned the enduring enmity of the psychology establishment. Dr. Ekman continues to challenge established orthodoxies and break fresh ground. Bill Russell and I caught up with him in Vancouver a few hours after another of his conversations with the Dalai Lama. Paul Ekman, I have had the opportunity over the last 15 years to talk to a lot of people about a lot of things, and I've learned an immense amount. One of the things I've tried to figure out over that time is what makes for truly great art, with the little letters art. And I think perhaps it is it is elegant simplicity. Time and time and time again, I come back to a play that I think I've seen once, and I never met the author. It is Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman, where he says, attention must be paid. Mm -hmm. Isn't that great art? Yes, I saw that play, and I love that line. Doesn't that apply across the human condition? In fact, my wife and I 
occasionally say that to each other. <laughs> Attention must be paid. <laughs> Stop drifting off somewhere else. Well, Pay I attention. Say, I say that because your work with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, with emotional awareness, your own lifetime of work of paying attention to the musculature, the expression of human emotions, your work with television, there are just a, a, a thousand different ways that attention must be paid seems to come into play. Now, tell me, tell me why I think that. Well, it's, it's much easier for us to be attentive to others than to ourselves, uh, particularly in the realm of emotion. That's not obvious. The, almost all of us, I mean, if we are in an emotional state, that filters our perception of others and biases our perception of others. But if we're not in a very intense emotional state, then paying attention, I mean, if we don't get bored, if it's interesting, it's not very hard. But nature makes it really quite difficult for us to be aware of what's going on within ourselves. And yet it would seem contradictory because we, most of us, have voices that are talking to us. All the time in my head? Right. But, you know, right at this moment, there's no voice talking to me. I'm talking to you. Yeah. And I'm engaged in talking to you. And I don't have a commentator who's talking to me about how I'm talking to you. Uh, did Paula really understand that? What did she really mean? Or None of that's going on. Because? I'm engaged. So, being engaged, I'm in the conversation, not in two places at once. I'm not sitting on the couch watching me in the conversation and kibitzing. I'm just talking to you. And the when I wrote the book before this one, the Emotions Revealed book, it became clear to me that the key to being able to regulate your own emotions, to be able to choose whether to engage or not, that's Everybody would love to have that choice. Do I care enough? Does it make a difference? Or just let it pass by? Often we don't. In fact, I would say more than often. Typically we don't. It's a skill which you have to learn and practice like a concert pianist has to practice every day. If you want to recognize the impulse and choose whether to engage or not, you'll have to... You'll have to do a lot of work because nature didn't want you to do that. I mean, suppose while you're driving down the freeway, another car veers towards you and you recognize the impulse and say, well, there's something that could actually destroy me, maybe. Uh, what should I do? Should <laughs> shall I, I be kind? Should I step on the gas pedal and go faster or should I take my foot off and hit the brake? Which way should I turn? If you took out the time to think about what to do, you wouldn't survive. And it is one of the interesting questions that I, you know, I'm at the point in life where I'm, I'm recognizing that there's so many interesting questions I'm not going to have the time to work on and try to answer. But suppose you are like the Dalai Lama. You have actually put in the tens of thousands of hours that he has in meditation. He boasted to me today. I don't think it's wrong to say a boast, because I don't think all boasts are bad. Some boasts, I mean, 
You know, I, I heard, he said, do you know I get nine hours of sleep every night? That's worth boasting about. That's right. I said, boy, that's wonderful. I'm so glad you get nine hours. You know, maybe once a month I get nine hours. Is uh, there something to be learned here? Well, I think what's to be learned is that he has much more finely tuned control over his own state. Uh, now, I, I know I was on a path to something else before I gave you his boast. Well, the, the, the whole awareness of one's oh, yes, and having gone through that right. discipline. So, now, so there we are. We're driving down the freeway. By the time we recognize that there was a car threatening us, it's already passed because we've made very complex decisions automatically in milliseconds. And if we didn't, we wouldn't have survived the saber-toothed tiger. It is because there were saber-toothed tigers that we can drive on freeways. That <laughs> gave us the mechanisms for dealing with sudden threats that had to be dealt with automatically without conscious thought. Now, there's a lot of unconscious appraisal of speed and direction and what we should do, and we do it all without thinking about it. Just like typically, when you drive from one place to another, you don't even remember how you did it. You're, thinking, you're listening to the radio, you're having a conversation, you're doing a lot of other things because you've already allowed the other-than-conscious part of your mind to run the show, and most of the time it does a very good job. However, here's the question. If you learn impulse awareness so that as impulses arise, you become conscious and make the choice, I'll engage or I'm not going to. My wife's very angry at me today, but I'm not going to get angry back. And in fact, I'm not going to be willing to talk about what she's angry about until she gets past the anger so we can deal with it without the passion that anger involves. Um, if you've learned that ability, is it still safe for you to drive? I don't, the Dalai Lama doesn't drive ever. So, you know. Well, I'm better at it, and I drive pretty much. <laughs> yes, but are you really at the point where you, most of the time, recognize the impulses before the emotion? That's, that's a very long distance. That's get. a master, isn't it? That is a master. Indeed. And most of us won't get there. Uh, we can approximate it. I'm there maybe 20% of the time. But I'm as good a driver as I used to be. Now, maybe that's because I'm older. Maybe it's because Maybe you're listening to the radio. I don't. I turn the radio off now. And uh, most of the time I won't hold a conversation. Uh, but there, you know, it's, uh, it's probably age. It's probably not the little bit of impulse awareness I've gotten. But the two key things. One is to be aware of an emotion as it's arising and choose whether to engage. The second key skill difficult skill is if you don't recognize the impulse and you start to act emotionally and your voice starts to get that edge or if it's anger or starts to feel really disheartened if you're discouraged you begin to pout a little bit that lower lip <laughs> to be at least aware of it but most of us have the experience that it's not until afterwards that we're aware or until someone says what are you getting so upset about Paula I mean is, what's really a on your mind, and then you suddenly realize. So those are skills in which are really necessary for the lives that we lead now. Clearly, they weren't necessary 
in the history of our species, or they would be developed already. And what was instead necessary was fast, automatic responses that reflected not only the history of the species, but what we had learned growing up. I mean, there's the other key thing. You want to be well-adjusted? Stay in your environmental home. If everybody is like your mother and daddy were, and then you're going to do pretty well because that's what you learned how to deal with. Yeah, unless it's a dysfunctional mommy and daddy. Then you've learned how to act towards dysfunctional people, and your problem is going to be that whenever you run into functional people, you're still going to treat them as if they were more dysfunctional people because we are. some of us have scripts that are unresolved, that come from earlier in our lives, and we are like a... Uh, director of a movie, we are casting these new people to, this is, you're going to be in her role and you're going to be in his role, and so I've got to run through that same tired old plot all over again, but we don't realize it, and so we're distorting the current world to fit the unresolved world that we're still carrying around. We're going to come back in a moment to go right there. Nobody else in the world has ever revised Darwin and claimed the copyright on it, except <laughs> Paul Ekman, who did it wonderfully for all of the world when when you updated Charles Darwin in both conceptually and in a wonderful book that was the... Um, the emotions in expression of emotions. expression of emotions in humans and i always man think and animals. see i always think of humans and other animals but it is yeah, man, and man and animals <laughs> we're going to be back shortly with paul ekman we trust that you'll be here too Welcome back to the Paula Gordon Show, conversations with people at the leading edge. What an honor to again be with the great Paul Ekman, our friend, the doctor, the many things. Bill Russell and I are delighted to be together with Paul Ekman here in Vancouver, British Columbia, in the great country, Canada. We went away talking about both the environment that included saber-toothed tigers and the environment that could be either functional or dysfunctional. You would carry that script forward unless you had finished that work and gone out to be free of that script. The notion of environment is so fundamental to understanding the Darwinian approach to uh, life, to all things. I have found Darwin to be the whole Darwinian concept, which I guess we say is the new Darwinian synthesis, to be fundamentally liberating for me in thinking about virtually everything. It gives me data, it gives me perspective, it helps me understand who I am in the context in which I find myself. It's just, it's been profound to come to that kind of, and I probably have only scratched the surface. The Darwinian process and the environmental issue of which we were just speaking is at the heart of what I perceive in the work that you did in going back and really thinking hard about the expression of emotions in men and animals. Can we go back to the Darwinian part of this? Because you are above all people I can think of are as close to helping me think my way further into this Darwinian thinking uh, as I can imagine. And to me, it is essential to understanding everything. I stand on Darwin's shoulders, and uh, I hope it's not too uncomfortable for him. 
<laughs> well, he has passed, yeah. so it's okay. Although I did have one dream in which we had a conversation. And uh, he said to me, uh, I really appreciate all that you've done on this new edition of my expression book, which has been largely ignored for the last hundred years, which it has been. And Darwin was a scrupulous bookkeeper of his royalties. You know, he made a fortune on the sales of his books. And the expression book did extremely well when it was first published. Uh, I mean, you think of the title, The Expression of Emotion in Man and Animals. You couldn't come up with a more popular title. It sold 7,000 copies in the first three months in London. In 1872. <laughs> That's a lot of That's books. A lot of books. And... Uh, the, but in the 20th century, and if it sold very little, and because uh, it had a view of that there was a large biological, genetically transmitted that what we do reflects, in some sense, the wisdom of the ages. What has been preserved and useful for the survival of the species when we were hunters and gatherers, which was 95 percent the time we were on this planet. Uh, well, that was very anti-Lockean. As in John Locke. And John Locke, the tabula rasa. And both in the West, the belief, the reification of the family. The state creates the family, the family creates the person. It isn't your children, you can make silk purses out of sow's ears. Your children all come into the world for you to shape and create. Well, we now know that's not true, but for uh, more than a hundred years, and not just in the West. I mean, that was the Soviet view as well, because the state makes the person, controls the family, makes the person. So Darwin was considered was quite unpopular and relatively ignored for the expression book. When I entered the scene, this was about 1965, went through serendipity, not because I sought it, not because I wanted to do cross-cultural work, but a uh, program manager in the Defense Department who had been s supporting my work on threats. I was quite interested in the nature of threats. So I'm not going to support that anymore. What else are you doing? I said, well, you know, you won't be interested. No, no, tell me. I said, well, I'm studying gestures and expression in mental patients. He said, you know, I'm married to a woman from Thailand, and we're having a lot of marital problems, and I think it's cross-cultural misunderstanding. How would you like to have the money to study gestures and expressions all over the world, find out what's similar and what's different? It's his idea, not mine. Uh, would that be yes, please? No, I said, I'll think about it. Because <laughs> I wasn't trained in anthropology, so I went back to San Francisco, and decided I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I know how to study mental patients. I'm going to keep doing that. So he called me on the phone and he says, how's the proposal coming? I said, I decided not to do it. He said, I'll see you tomorrow. He flew out. He sat down at the typewriter. He wrote the proposal. This is 1965. Gave me close to a million dollars. The conditions were really simple. One, you have to spend at least half of the year out of the country yourself. Can't subcontract it. Two, it has to be basic research with no military application. Very tough conditions to meet. <laughs> that was it? That was it. Okay. So 
Now I have the problem facing me. I knew Margaret Mead. I had studied her. I had never read Darwin. Nobody read Darwin in the 1950s when I was a graduate student. Uh, I knew about it. I knew he was wrong. And uh, I... So you didn't bother. I didn't bother. So I set out to try to do it. And the initial data I got started to come out more on Darwin's side. I mean, I changed my views because of the findings. And then when I went to... uh, I knew that the only way I was going to get definitive evidence was to study people who had no contact with the outside world. So you couldn't say any similarities were due to John Wayne and Charlie Chaplin rather than their evolutionary heritage. So I went to work in a Stone Age culture in New Guinea and did get the evidence. That was in 1967 and 68. A long time ago, there still were isolated cultures. They don't exist anymore. But more generally, I started to, once I knew that Darwin was right, he was right on both things. He said expressions are universal and gestures are culture-specific language-like. And that's correct, too. So things like this may mean A-OK, or it's a very vulgar insult in Sicily. Total, mm. Totally different meaning of the same movement. Uh, and there are a number of others. If you're not a German, you don't know I just said good luck. Okay? No, I don't. Holding thumbs. Uh, when I grew up as a kid, that was good luck. Yeah. And uh, nobody knows, uses it anymore. Their current kids don't use that. These things go in and out of... That means I'm lying. <laughs> if it's behind your back, it means I'm lying. <laughs> If it's in front, it's good luck. We'll get to lying after a while. So more generally taking a a perspective that part of what we do is and how we behave, particularly when it comes to the area of emotion, is the result of phylogenetic influences. I take the radical position that if it only exists in humans, it can't be an emotion. Emotions are shared with other animals. And how we behave, in part, reflects our phylogenetic history, our history as hunters and gatherers, and part superimposed on that structure and those proclivities are what we learn in the first years of life. So it's both, in that sense, we're all different because we have different first years of laws, but we do share some of this common material that reflects our history on the planet and our phylogenetic history, and that's in the area of emotion. Now, if we go into the area of cognition and thoughts, I mean, we are the only animal that we know of that uses symbols to represent plans, actions, feelings, etc. It's a giant change. Now, words are... Evolutionary change. Yes, and it's like the opposable thumb. You know, you look at other uh, animals and you do find things that look like fingers, but that opposable thumb means you can do all kinds of things that you can't do without it. And with words, you could do, you can reflect upon, you can plan ahead, because you can think about what isn't happening right now. You've got the symbols to do so. As best as we know, no other animal can do that. And we've only had that capability maybe 40, 50,000 years. It's not like we came into being Homo sapiens with language. That's right. (laughs) Even that is an evolutionary moment. Yes, it is. And it's got uh, um, 
it can distract us, it can remove us, but it's a great tool for, for use by, in an intelligent way uh, for our emotions, for understanding our emotions. <coughs> I'm sorry. <coughs> and it can get in our way. And it can get in our way because we can become totally preoccupied with the words and the thoughts and lose touch with our feelings. I have some evidence that the more education you have, the more likely it is that you won't know how you're feeling. Really? Yeah, you're going to because have, you're going to because you're you are in the your mind, you're in the thoughts, you're in the planning, you're not in the moment. And you've got all these wonderful tools for being anywhere but in the moment. That's humbling. The uh, so I wanted to tell you about this dream I had with Darwin. Yes, yes, indeed. So he said, "I'm just I, I'm so delighted what you've done with this book." And incidentally, I met two of Darwin's great great grandsons. Uh, after the edition, the third edition that I edited was out, and they loved it because what I did was I put over a hundred commentaries from a modern perspective inserted in his text. And uh, the Times Literary Supplement said there are two books there's Darwin's book and Ekman's book within Darwin's book, but it isn't really my book within it, it's my commentary on what he said that for the reader brings you up to date. And it gives you the data that was unavailable to him. him. Right. And lets you know when his guesses were right. About 90% of the time they were. It's pretty good. Well, I only bring Darwin up because of this whole profound importance of environment. But I want to come back still. To the dream? The, uh, <laughs> I want you to. I have oh. a dream. Uh, <laughs> and you want to share it. Uh, is that from my... Is that... I had a dream. Is that a West Side Story? Where is I had a dream? I think well, it's Martin Luther King. I have a dream. The, <laughs> at the uh, Lincoln Memorial would be my guess. But let's oh, no, that Martin Luther King said, I have a dream, but there's a song. I had a dream. Da, da, I, had a dream. I don't know, Paul, but okay. let's go back to the dream. So, okay. the dream. so Darren <laughs> says, thank you so much for what you've done to bring my book back to public attention. But the afterwards that you've written in the book, it's over 100 pages. Don't you think that's a little long for my book? So I cut it in half. And the other half has still never been published because I haven't, you know, it was a discussion of the nature of signals. And I haven't really figured out where in the world, what am I going to ever do with that? I don't, uh, I don't know that anybody has had quite such an intimate relationship with Darwin in the last 10 or 15 yes. or 20 years. Yeah, you know, I had to take it literally. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I did. That's good advice, yeah, too. It's good advice. Yeah. I mean, really. 50 page afterward is enough. <laughs> okay, <laughs> back to the environment. <laughs> now, Darwin has, my recent, you know, it's only the last 10 years, um, because of my daughter, I would never, this is serendipity again. Not that I have a daughter is not serendipity, <laughs> but my getting to know the Dalai Lama and getting interested in his thinking and his approach uh, is all because of my daughter, who I introduced to him as my spiritual leader. She no longer has much interest in Buddhism, but I got... But when she was in high school? When she was in high school, she spent a summer... We thought she was just going trekking for, for a bunch of other kids and a teacher in Nepal. But they spent two weeks, each kid in a different... Uh, Tibetan refugee family's home. And so she came back all fired up about free Tibetan. 
And Eve is an activist. She organized the largest high school free Tibet club in America and got to meet the Dalai Lama briefly. And uh, I had always thought, well, you know, he preaches nonviolence like Gandhi, like King, must be a good person. But Buddhism seemed to me just another Bay Area cult, and I had nothing to do with the cults. But you were in the Bay Area, so you knew wherever you spoke. That's right. I knew I'd (laughs) seen him come and go. And... uh, but I knew if you got invited, he's very interested in Western science, and if you got invited to meet with him, you got to bring one silent observer. I thought, wouldn't that be a treat for my daughter? So I put my name in, they invited me, I brought her, and he and I inexplicably connected. And uh, he wrote about that in uh, one of his most recent books, The Universe in a Single Atom, that uh, he felt this immediate connection. Uh, more recently, he's told me, well, you know, we were brothers in a previous incarnation, and uh, I can't explain it. I mean, in the Western terms, we'd say it's a deja vu. When I met him, I felt like I'd always known him. And uh, so he's very amused that he can explain it, and I can't. <laughs> uh, but I, I, when I met with him earlier today, I gave him my interpretation of reincarnation. We were holding hands at that point, and I put another hand, and I said, now, I don't want this to offend you, but here's how I interpret reincarnation as a Western scientist, that it's a brilliant metaphor, almost 2,600 years old, for the idea that when we enter the world, we're not tabula rasa. When we enter the world, we are in part part of our story is already written. Now, they didn't know at that time that reincarnation, how the past influences the present, but it does, and it does it through genes. So we have now discovered the mechanism that shows the influence of the past. So then we got into a very interesting thing, because if you take people who show what I call heroic compassion. It's one of one, two, three, it's one of four types of compassion that I'm distinguishing now that I talked with him about both in the book, but I've changed the positions a little bit. Would you expect, if you have heroic compassion, if you're the person who jumps into the subway and pulls that person out without thought, a total stranger, or rescues a total stranger from the pond, perhaps losing your own life so that they don't drown. Would you find in their family line, in their grandparents, or uncles, or aunts, cousins, would you find others who have this proclivity? No, says the Dalai Lama, because it's not genes, it's past karma. Yes, says Paul Ekman, it's gene. So we now have a way to test this two different ways of interpreting past influence. Paul Ekman finds ways to test things as a Western scientist that just blow me away. So Bill Russell and I will be blown away again when we come back in just a moment. We trust you'll be with us too. What a pleasure it is for Bill Russell and for me, Paula Gordon, to be with Paul Ekman, Dr. Ekman, who has done a lifetime of work around emotions in the human creature. I like to think of us as the human animal. 
among the things that you have done and are doing, and even though you have been retired from the University of California, San Francisco now for six years, you are deeply engaged in the world and with the world, and particularly are learning from, and I dare say teaching, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, as the two of you work together, which you render wonderfully in the book that you call Emotional Awareness. There are a lot of us who would like to live a better life a, staying out of fights, and B, moving towards serenity, if you will, moving to a place where you feel that you've, you know, this is better, that I don't have to just take what I was given when I was born, that I have some, uh, um, I can touch who and what I am, that I have a, a role to play in myself. Now, there are those who say, no, you don't, and they're pretty rigorous about that, but you real evidence working specifically with His Holiness that we do play a part in creating who we are it, micro, individually, inside our own little personage as well as the species, which is no mean except the fact that the planet's in trouble because of our species, the evolution on, on both micro and macro. Where do we get a toehold on this kind of evidence that we can, in fact, influence who we are personally and who we are in, as a species on the planet? It's a very tough question. Oh, well, yes. Uh, and, uh, and yet, there are two possibilities. Uh, one is, no, we can't. It's all, I mean, that, that kind, that's a fatalism. Um, I think that works very well if you're living in a caste or feudal society. You clearly can't do much about it. It really doesn't work at all uh, for societies in which there's any individual freedom, where you do have a choice as to what you're going to do to some extent. I mean, And who you're going to be? And who you're going to be and what in your obligations are to your fellow human beings. And the and planet. To, and to the planet. And and to your offspring, your intellectual offspring, if you are a teacher, your biological offspring, if you're a parent. I've thought that becoming a parent really mortgages you to life after your death. You care now, not just that it's a good place for you, but it's a good place for the next generation who you've put a lot of time into and that's why the species continues and uh, the if we didn't care about the next generation then these troublesome wailing infants we wouldn't invest in them and we put an enormous investment in them and we do it usually for most of us without consideration in fact we're impelled most of us, not all of us. I mean, natural selection cannot work without variation. So on any human characteristic you can think of uh, that has a social significance or a biological significance, there's going to be variations. You never know what's going to fit this particular changing environmental niche. That's why humans can live in the most diverse environments of any animal. But the price of that is that we have a, the longest period of dependency. Uh, in humans a long time that offsprings not going to survive unless you take care of them and teach them but that means there's this enormous open period to kind of create 
what goes into the brain. What is that like you. the open period between stimulus and the ability to respond? Well, you may learn that ability, but uh, you usually kind of have to do work considerably later in your life to acquire that. But it's that same sort of idea that if you get into those spaces that yes. are available, you can do things. You can do things. Now, I said before, there are two choices. One is the fatalistic one. The other one is individual action and efficacy. And the Dalai Lama says, I don't know whether reincarnation is true. How would I know? It's just what I believe. And I say to him, well, I don't believe there is a, any reincarnation or any form of afterlife, but how can I be certain I'm not dead? Right? When I'm dead, then I'll be certain. If, if I was wrong, I'll be certain, because I'll think, oh my God, I'm dead and I'm still alive in some way. My mind is still there. He said to me, if you can prove that there is no, that when the brain is dead, there is no mind, I won't be a Buddhist. Because it's central to Buddhism to think the mind continues in some form. That's the spiritual and more Christian or Jewish world. Of course, I think that that's absolutely the case. And I said, you know, 50 years from now, nobody would ever say what you're saying right now. It'll be so certain. The mind is just a metaphor and a simple way of talking about some of the activities of the brain, the ones that we're most aware of. But let's go back and say we can't be absolutely certain. Is it all out of our hands or is it all in our hands? Of course, it's somewhere in between. But what's the better way to lead your life? Make your bets. You may as well bet that it's in your hands. Then it's not in your hands. Because then you're going to at least make a try. You're going to try to do something. And, you know, although historians argue whether it's a hero or history, there's just, I think, no question that individuals, individually, you don't have to be the most talented person in the world to make a difference. You can make a difference, he believes, step by step, person by person. The Buddhists like to talk about the story of, uh, oh, I wish I had this bit down better, but uh, I just heard it again yesterday from Matthew Ricard, of uh, there's a terrible forest fire and uh, all of the animals have gotten to the edge of the fire and there's this little hummingbird that is flying over to the ocean picking up a drop of water at its beak flying back and dropping it on the fire one drop at a time and if all of us do things one drop at a time do the best that we can do then we'll create a better world for Everyone. You say that His Holiness believes that. Do you believe that? That each individual can make a difference? Yes. The nature of the difference is going to depend on the individual. But all of us, you know, I think one of the emotions I named in uh, the book before the one with uh, the Dalai Lama it was is emotions revealed. revealed. And in it, I name it an emotion that's not named in the English language. There are quite a few of them, actually. Um, my favorite one is one that's only named in Yiddish, Nachas, which is that enormous pride you feel in the accomplishment of your offspring, when they stand on your shoulders, when you enable them. And uh, it's, I think it's fundamental to human survival and to parenting. Because it feels good when you see your... And, and the, when I first told the Dalai Lama about this, he said, oh, but it's just for your child. It's selfish. I said, no. 
it's for all children. That when I see another child get up on the stage and do something wonderful, I get that same feeling. And in that sense, becoming a parent makes you a parent to all children. Your heart is open to these vulnerable young creatures who you want to help enable. Great thing. The second one, we all know, schadenfreude. The pleasure we take in hearing about the miseries of the people we don't like. Which is why we gossip. That's right. We're not supposed to enjoy this, but it's it has its own sweetness. And uh, it's interesting that the Germans have a name for it. Oh, dear. And uh, <laughs> we don't have a single word for it in English. And the third one, which is how I got started on this, is what the Italians call fiero. And it's this feeling when I've stretched myself to my limit and done it. I get this when I get a sentence that sings. And sometimes they just come one after another. Sometimes I can work all day until I finally get a sentence that works and it feels great. It's not competing with someone else. It's all within me. It's An athlete feels that when they get their best performance. Now, my best writing is not the equal of Philip Roth's best writing. He gets that same experience when he stretches himself that I get when I stretch myself. And that's what all of us can get that enjoyment. And the wonderful thing about it is it's good for everyone because you've done the best of what you can do with who you are. Fiero? Fiero. We should hold that one. I, as you were talking, you said uh, balance, and it took my mind and eyes right back to the subtitle of emotional awareness, which is overcoming the obstacles to psychological balance and compassion. Yeah. Balance in yes. all these things of which you speak yes. is really important, isn't it? Is. it? It's, it's pivotal, which is a balanced term, right? Yeah. Balance on that pivot. And how do you achieve balance in your life? Work and family, entertainment, uh, and uh, investment in your life, in the, in the lives of others. These are all, when you're out of balance, one part is, I mean, to be totally concerned, to be in self, denial of the self for the service of others is to be out of balance too. And you certainly don't see that in the Dalai Lama. He gets nine hours sleep a night. And he loves to eat. And he said today, most of the time what's important is quality, not quantity. But for food, it's quantity, especially for me. <laughs> he loves to eat. People are always so surprised that he has a wonderful sense of humor, we've oh, heard. He Isn't is, that part of this balance thing? Yes, I've never laughed so much in my life as in uh, the 40 hours we spent conversation. Now, the meeting today, there were only a few jokes because there was so much time pressure. Mm. Um, well, maybe there's a lesson in that, too. There is, which is that if I really want to continue the conversation with him, and I'm not certain where, if there is another place to go, because there are some conversations that end, mm-hmm. where you've talked about everything that you really have. I mean, you like each other, so you like to see each other, but you don't really have something, some new area to explore. And, and uh, time is all we have. And time is. And we, the older we get, the less we've got ahead of us. We don't know how much, but we certainly know it's. we're in the last phase. Um, we are not accustomed 
to the idea of limits. But that's the nature of life. Oh, I have a wonderful story. One of our disagreements... Yours and... The Dalai Lama's. If you notice, I'm not calling him His Holiness. And uh, I can't do that because I don't regard him as holy. And uh, he's an extraordinary person. I admire him. I enjoy him. But he's a person. And uh, that very term, His Holiness, was adopted uh, by his advisors for him to use when he had to go out in the world. And where do you think they got it? They thought, well, the closest to him is the Pope. Well, he is so unlike, not to demean the Pope, but there is no dogma. He is a monk. And he has, and what he says is what the Buddha says, if if what I tell you doesn't work for you, reject it. That is not what you hear from the Pope. You hear the word of God from the Pope, and you are supposed to follow it without question. So that's the second reason. Not only do I not leave anyone, I won't, can't conceive of calling him the same name that I would, you call to call the Pope. I think so you then, have just corrected me, and I stand corrected, and I thank you. How's that? How's I will call him the Dalai Lama. Lama. Right. So now, but the problem with calling him the Dalai Lama would be like calling me professor. Hmm. You could call me professor, but then you're, it's a little bit of a distance term. Mm-hmm. Now, students and, and people do call me professor who don't know me, but my friends don't call me professor. And he doesn't. He calls me Paul. And you call him? My dear friend. I was hoping that this time I would be willing to say Tenzin. Could you do it? Uh, I didn't do it. I just said my dear friend. Next time. (laughs) There is a next time. I would have done it if these nasty people weren't in the room. This but again knew, is balanced, though, isn't that, it? I knew that that it, they would think I was so disrespectful yes. that I didn't want to. They're already mad at me for taking up his time, uh, even though the, his most senior people know he loves to talk with me, and it's good for him. He laughs all the time. I don't tell jokes, but. But you're funny. Right, I guess so. <laughs> I've never had so much fun as talking with him. The uh, now that was the dollar. There was another story, and I've lost what it was. I mean, filibuster. <laughs> this is one of the challenges of language that we come up against. We we we, we create these abstractions, these symbols, and then we treat them as if they are real. I have no problem with his holiness in the first sense. Mm. Uh, because I figure it's his holiness is not mine. <laughs> and we all are holy. Now, having raised the second one, I, I am now going to have to rethink yeah. my term of reference. And yeah. I think uh, maybe Paul's good friend <laughs> well, you see, will be the term you, of... Well, you've got the other thing, and that is, do you treat anyone reverentially, uh-huh. deferentially? And Jesus said, That's don't different. do that. And, and he doesn't like it either. Right. In fact, the reason, one of the reasons we get along so well is we like to challenge each other. Mm-hmm. And he knows he can challenge me as much as he wants. I love it, and I will challenge him as much as I possibly can. And he loves it. And you love each other. That's right. And that's the balance of which we were speaking. Let us go away for just a moment. And we'll be back shortly with Paul Ekman. And in a wonderful echo kind of way, since Paul Ekman spent the morning with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And you can call him anything you want. Paul Ekman's good friend. Please be with us when we return. 
A couple more minutes with Paul Ekman here in Vancouver, British Columbia, Bill Russell and I. You were in town with His Holiness the Dalai Lama because there was a world peace convening. Can you, in a minute and a half, tell us why that's achievable in a world that has so much going wrong? I don't know whether it is or not, but we have to take, we have to do what we can to achieve it. We have to find a way to stop killing each other. We have to find a way to stop destroying the planet. Now, that's not an easy goal to have, but it's, we have, technology has brought us to the brink. We are no longer in the 19th or even early 20th century where we could afford to pollute without worry. We're going to, there'll be, global warming will ruin all of our lives and the lives of our children if we don't stop it. And that's going to take major effort. And with nuclear weapons and their proliferation, we're going to kill everyone a lot more than we want to kill if we don't bring that under. So the world has in some sense caught up to the Buddhist view of interdependence. You know, it, you could get away with in the 17th, 18th, 19th century thinking, just for me, just my clan, just fellow Englishmen or Americans, or whatever. You can't do it anymore. Are we up to the challenge? We'll have to. Tr we have to try. Will we succeed? I don't know, but I'll try. It's all you can do. And some of that is in seeking emotional awareness, psychological balance, and compassion. Can you, the Dalai Lama says, and I agree with him, if you have self-hatred, you cannot have compassion. You cannot abandon violence if you hate yourself. Let us stop at that point and come back the next time. We thank you, Paul Ekman. Pleasure. The powerful role that emotions play in all our lives is generally underestimated. Paul Ekman's lifelong studies of emotions, along with his collaboration with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, have been major contributions toward a richer understanding of ourselves and of our connections with other people. We thank him. I'm Paula Gordon. I wish you well.